my hope and my desire as a Chinese medicine practitioner to change, help change the conversation about beauty by simply educating people about um, TCM and how it views who you are. And um, it's such a tragedy when people can't enjoy their beauty. Welcome to Bedside Manor. This is Famously, a podcast about the human side of helping people. I'm your host. My name is Juliana Hazelwood, and I am a Katona yoga teacher, a student of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and this is new. I'm a doula in training. More on that later, but I just wanted to announce. (laughs) My PR people told me I should announce that. No, um, that's just some news I wanted to share. Okay, I am so excited for today's show. The star of today's show is Sandra Lanchin Chu, who many of you might know already, but for those who don't, Sandra is an incredibly gifted Chinese medicine practitioner who specializes in skincare and skin conditions. We talked for like over two hours, maybe even almost three, and it really killed me to cut down the interview, but I, I did condense it a little bit. Um, but since it's kind of a longy, I thought I would give you a little bit of a, the lay of the land and then set some context for why I love this conversation so much, just because we cover a lot of ground and I want you to listen to the whole thing. So first half of the episode, uh, we get into what Sandra's treatments are like. So it gets pretty technical for those of you who study Chinese medicine or are interested in the way Chinese medicine approaches health conditions and diagnostics and stuff like that. You might really love the first half. Then we transition uh, into talking more about Sandra's ethos, about beauty, about Chinese medicine as a framework for healing the whole body. We also talk a lot about appropriation, social media, influencers, what the hell is happening with gua sha right now on the internet. Uh, So we really cover a lot of grounds. And then of course we cap it off with, um, well, some more esoteric thoughts about what beauty really is and why it can be such a potent therapeutic um, tool, I guess you could say. Uh, and then of course we end with her soft powers, which are so good. And she even kind of throws in a fourth soft power. So Sandra was so generous with her time and her spirit. Um, it was such a joy to talk to her and I'm releasing this episode. This is where I give context for the episodes. If you want to just skip to the episode and not hear me talk, that's okay. I'll see you at the end of the show. If you want to stick around, I'll keep it brief if I can. But the reason I wanted to bring her on and then release that this week is because I've had a few interactions with, well, actually more than a few interactions with people who are really struggling to enjoy their own beauty. I don't know what is going on, but it seems like all of a sudden, patients, friends, uh, random like 
clerks at the that CVS are are railing on on their looks, on their hair, on their skin, on their acne, on this. And this breaks me on a fundamental level. When I hear a person talk about how ugly they feel, I cannot accept that. <laughs> and I think the reason is because A, I have also not felt beautiful for most of my life. Hello, eating disorder. But something has happened in the last few years during my recovery process where I have successfully sort of changed my own relationship with beauty. And because of that, I've learned how beauty can be truly healing, truly alchemical, and truly transformative. And I wanted to walk you through that journey a little bit because as I've been talking to these people and kind of like coaching them through their beauty process, I've been like, wait, how did I get good at this? How did, how did this become a soft power of mine? And I realized that A, it's come through struggle and B, it's come through my training in the arts. So let me explain that to you. The first piece, struggle. Many of you, of course, know that I am in recovery from anorexia and I obviously have like extreme body dysmorphia, which I don't think will ever go away. But something kind of crazy happened during the most productive parts of my recovery where I had to reckon with this belief that I had that the only striking or um, interesting, alluring part about me was that I was thin. I think because I felt really ugly for most of my life, um, I thought, okay, well, I have a, a weird face, but at least I'm skinny, you know, just such a fucked up, horrible, sad thing to say about yourself. And if you've said similar things about yourself, I'm, I just want to give you a hug because it feels horrible to hear that. Um, so of course, when I started to gain weight in recovery, I could have freaked out and been like, I will never be pretty again because the one thing that made me pretty is now being taken away from me. And I, I think there was a bit of that at the beginning, but something miraculous happened. And that is when I started to look in the mirror and feel like puffy and kind of like bland and blech, I just kind of ignored everything from the neck down and said, okay, my skin is looking a little droopy and puffy and not alive. How can I support my skin? How, what can I do to look more radiant? And the answer was taking better care of my skin. And when I started taking better care of my skin, surprise, surprise, I started taking better care of my body. And then I started to enjoy my skin and play more with makeup and like change the shape of my eyebrows so that my eyes would look more lifted. You know, things like this that just sort of get folded into the mix of a beauty routine that end up having a cumulative effect that penetrates a lot deeper. And so a lot of people, I think, assume that beauty routines... Um, beautification processes, whether it's on the face or even like, you know, the way you decorate your apartment or your clothes and things like that. People could think that's very superficial. 
it doesn't matter. And when times are really hard, like I don't have time for that. It's too much of an effort. But I would argue that when times are really hard and they are hard and when you're struggling, and I know people are definitely struggling, I think that is the time to focus on the most accessible, superficial level, right? Like the stuff that really plagues us on a deep level, those things that make us feel insecure or unworthy or ugly that are so deep, those are those have really complex solutions. And I'm not here to say that like eyeliner or skincare or buying flowers for your apartment is the solution to your deepest insecurities. But I am saying when you're really going through it, why not just start at the easiest, most superficial layer? Why not start by buying some flowers and putting them in your living room and enjoying their beauty? Why not start with getting yourself a nice little candle or a new serum for your face or changing the color of your eyeliner for a day. These things might, you know, of course they're not going to solve the issue, but what they can do is put us in a frame of mind for what? Five minutes where we feel uplifted, inspired, moved, soothed, And if that was five minutes where you felt the opposite of that before you brought those flowers into your house or before you changed your makeup a little or, you know, whatever the thing is, that's a win for me. And it's a win for me because it's a way in. It's a way in to coax us into doing the deeper work, into taking care of ourselves on a more profound level. It's just a way of gently approaching this idea of taking good care of ourselves which for me at least has been a hard thing to figure out Um, so I don't think I'm the only one who has struggled with that question like how do I take care of myself how do I be a person in this body Uh, what, what do I do with all of these insecurities and perceived deficiencies so that's my argument for superficial superfluous beauty The way I think that I have cultivated an appreciation for that is not so much in like therapy and eating disorder treatment, but actually through my training in the arts. And this is where I would say to you, those of you who have a creative practice or have trained in the arts in some way, shape or form, this is where I would say to you, what you do is extremely important. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say that art is healing and creativity is healing because ever since I was a kid I've been thoroughly steeped and trained in the arts in music dance visual art theater literature everything and because I've had creative practices in each of those sectors of art that means Ever since I was a kid, I have been practicing identifying and appreciating beauty as it resonates with me. So this is again where I say there is no linear definition of beauty. There are no boxes to check off. But what I have cultivated over a lifetime of creating and appreciating art is the ability to recognize what beauty resonates with me, what color, what melody, what uh, harmony 
what type of design and thoughtfulness and intention, what sort of, what kind of narratives speak to me. And I think that practice, that process is a beautifying process. It is a process of beautification, just as gua on your face with like a beautiful rosehip oil is. Do you know what I mean? And the, the best example that I will give of that is the fact that I have a rare medical condition where every time I go to the fifth floor of the MoMA, I walk into the Claude Monet room and I burst into tears every time. It never doesn't happen. And I don't, I don't know. I can't really explain it, but, and I actually have, like, I feel like verklempt telling you about this because there's just something so overwhelmingly beautiful about being in that space with that art these beautiful paintings and I am so moved by the fact that Claude Monet himself took it upon himself to devote years of his life to expressing the beauty of this garden and this water you know and the fact that it resonates with me so much in New York City in the year 2021 to the point where my body cries (laughs) that is what I would define as transcendent. That is the kind of beauty that feels therapeutic and healing. And I think that I am available to it because I have cultivated, um, I've sort of opened that gate. And the gate itself is sort of like the superficial aspects of beauty. And I I have a, a thing on my wall it's a quote, I don't remember who said it or where I found it, sorry, but it says, beauty is in the being who has felt it. And the reason I like to remind myself of this is for this reason. It is that anything that we consume topically, you know, anything that we put into our bodies or on our skin, any art that we experience, anything that we look at that we say, oh my God, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful oh my god it's so beautiful that all goes in through our senses through these sensory portals and gets integrated into our bodies to the point where in this case in in the monet moma story it literally changes my body to produce tears it moves me to tears and so yes we can get into that gnarly little trap of seeing external beauty outside of ourselves and trick ourselves into thinking that that is not available within us but the very fact that we can recognize beauty outside of ourselves means that our brain has translated that into an experience that is held exclusively within the bounds of our own body because we can only ever experience what is inside of our own body and so if we have experienced the beauty of another or the beauty of something in nature or the beauty in art that means that that beauty is literally inside of our bodies. And just because it's hidden or buried or dimmed doesn't mean it's not there. This is where I take issue with Tom York. And that is a sort of deep cut Radiohead reference for those of you keeping track at home. But what I mean to say is when something is buried, what do we do? We dig. And where do you start digging? at the surface. 
And so this is why I take beauty so seriously. And I take superfluous, superficial beauty so seriously because it is the starting point. It is the thing that allows us access to something deeper and more profound. Or, or maybe just as profound and also deeper. So if you happen to be in a mood where you are struggling with your beauty or intrigued by your beauty or kind of scared of your beauty, I would encourage you to see what little beautification processes you can sprinkle throughout your day to start uncovering some of the the deeper truths about your own beauty. Um, my my friend Chase just taught me how to make beans, and he was like salt early and often. And I'm thinking about that now, thinking about beautification rituals and routines as the seasoning that kind of flavors our day and our lives and our bodies. And we do them in little pieces throughout our day, so that the accumulation of the effect of all of them penetrates deeper the same way that like salt makes your beans (laughs) taste good (laughs) this metaphor is maybe need some work but you know if you don't if you don't do your due diligence seasoning your beans when you taste the beans they'll be bland and honey nothing makes me sadder than a person who tells me that they feel bland dull ugly any of it i really just i refuse to accept it so that's my diatribe on beauty thank you so much for listening if you are in fact still listening uh much more importantly is the fact that we are ready to start the show i would wager that you are very ready to start the show at this point (laughs) sorry um but anyway my darlings please welcome to the stage an absolute angel from heaven dr sandra lanchin chu enjoy hi so well thanks for having me um my name is sandra chu and i am a chinese medicine practitioner um and i use chinese medicine um specifically to treat skin disorders um so things that are of like a dermatological concern as well as i also use chinese medicine to um work with cosmetic treatments as well so I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner, but I speci- specialize in treating the skin. Fabulous. So a lot of people who listen to this are in the Chinese medicine world, but for those who aren't, um, do you want to explain a couple of the main modalities within that umbrella that you use and why they're so they're good for the face? Sure. Um, well, Chinese medicine, as you're right to um, want to define it a little bit more because it's very broad. So most people know Chinese medicine practices as acupuncture and probably herbal medicine and cupping and, and gua sha are probably the most well-known um, tools and modalities within Chinese medicine. So I, as a Chinese medicine practitioner, use all of that. And when we train, we're trained in all of that. So really, um, it's much broader than just acupuncture, because I think most people think of Chinese medicine as acupuncture, um, but it's actually, acupuncture is only one of 
our tools. Very powerful and incredible tool, but it is only one. So um, I practice all of it. I, in treating the skin, I utilize the most um, definitely herbal medicine for treating internal skin just or internally rooted skin disorders, which you could say is all skin disorders. But um, in treating things like acne, rosacea, eczema, um, dermatitis, et cetera, I really rely on using Chinese herbal medicine. And um, for all else, things like um, pain conditions, you know, as acupuncturists, we treat a lot of pain. But um, in my practice now, I treat a lot more um, cosmetic related um, desires of people. So, um, which doesn't exclude tension and pain issues actually. But um, for that, I use a lot of the more physical tools like needles, acupuncture, and gua sha and cupping and something called moxibustion for people who don't know what the heck that is. It's basically a Chinese um, infrared heat treatment. And it's a very effective, very powerful tool that, um, that I think doesn't get enough, um, there's not enough uh, focus on it. There, people don't really talk about that as much as the others, but it's a, it's a pretty important tool as well. So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit better picture of what um, Chinese medicine practitioners are up to, including myself. Yeah. Oh, it totally does. I'm so curious if you went to, we went to the same, well, I'm still at school, but uh, we shared uh, an educational path. Um, I'm wondering if when you first signed up for school, had the inkling to become a Chinese medical practitioner, were you, did you know that you would end up in this area of specialty or were you like attracted to the acupuncture part of it? No, I didn't know that at all. Um, when I first went, decided to attend Chinese medicine school, which is, you know, a master's program, um, I had no idea that I would end up here. And I was really just, I think it was a, a progression of my own, you know, spiritual and sort of personal development, which I had started to do a lot of. I was working in different corporate roles. So I was in corporate for a while. And um, during that time, I was, you know, looking into studying Buddhism, meditation, um, breathing practices, and just really looking into those kinds of practices and accessing that type of wisdom. And I think deciding to go to school for Chinese medicine was a progression of that because I remember feeling at the time that, that it would be a kind of profession that would not just allow me, but almost force me to stay inside of that um, personal reflection, spiritual reflection all the time. And, and because that really, supports that kind of work you do. And I think that when you work as a practitioner of healing, whether it's with Chinese medicine or something else, that um, staying close to your own healing work and staying connected to your own 
development in that way is, is really important. These are essentially leading others through their process. So there was just something in me at the time that was attracted to that. And then even after I graduated, um, I, I didn't specialize for like almost seven to eight years. So for the first seven, eight years of practice, I took whatever came to my door, you know, and I think that that's a really good way to practice when you first start, because you want to see as much as you can, especially with Chinese medicine, because you're learning to identify patterns, as you know, and for some listeners, they might not know what I mean, but um, for those of you that are practitioners, I think you know exactly what I mean is that you're trying to learn how to identify the patterns of the medicine in whatever you see. And I think that that's actually really important to, to generalize, to be like a general practitioner in the beginning. At least that's how I would recommend for people to not immediately specialize. Um, so then I just became more and more interested in what tools and, and um, strengths that Chinese medicine has in treating skin disorders, which are notoriously difficult to treat whatever medicinal approach you take, whether that's Western, whether that's Chinese medical, whether that's Ayurvedic or naturopathic, it's just a notoriously difficult type of condition to treat. And um, I also felt like really up for that challenge. Um, so that's when I started to focus more on um, skin and, and the cosmetic piece came from doing so many treatments um, for pain and tension and, and visually seeing the changes that happen when you treat the body physically. And start, and from that, I began to recognize that this would be really interesting to apply for facial things. And so for me, a lot of working with cosmetic treatments and working with the face is not about like anything superficial or like superficially beauty related, but this interesting puzzle of taking what I saw happen to the body and seeing if that would apply to the face and deliver good results. And, and I think that it really does because, and it makes sense because your face is part of your body. And so why would it work differently? Of course. But so it was like the, the thrill, I guess you could say of taking what I could see worked really well for the body and applying it to the face. And it was just really fun. Making the, the implicit quite explicit. Yeah. And just seeing that, um, you know, for a lot, so many people, um, for so many, the, there may be blockages towards wanting to do good for your health, but there seems to be very few blockages to wanting to do something good for your yeah. sense of beauty or your skin. And so it's a really good gateway into, um, Chinese medicine, I think. And that's another thing and another reason why I wanted to go in the direction of skin skincare is because um, it's just a really good way to introduce people to the medicine. And, and from there, they can, some people just really fall in love with it. And 
really identify with the Chinese medical ways of seeing, perceiving, and understanding life. And um, I just watch so many people get so much more than they bargain for mm. when they use Chinese medicine. You know, like it's more than just, um, you know, a wrinkled treatment or even ju- it's just beyond even just treating the acne. It's, it's really elevating your health on a, on a whole different level. And um, what that can do for your experience of your life is, is can be truly life-changing. I couldn't agree more. And uh, from my perspective, I think it, it always ties back to just helping people understand an aspect of themselves that they haven't really wanted to, or have been really confused about. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because of my arts background or just like the way that my brain is wired, but I think beauty in general as a concept is such, it's it's like the perfect gateway drug for anything. (laughs) And I, I, and I, I, I often describe this podcast and and the world that I've kind of created around these conversations as as a soft space, because beauty is something that is so subtle and so soft and so easy to overlook in, in hard times. But I think what you're articulating is so, uh, such a perfect example that like, you know, just like sugarcoating something with and allowing something to be beautiful or allowing a person to feel beautiful, even if they have acne, even if they're having some kind of uh, major reaction to something and they're flaring up mm-hmm. in some way. It's, I think mm-hmm. it's so, it actually is so substantive and important to like, to just focus on the beautiful aspects, not in this, you know, like spiritually bypassing Botox magic sure. wand way, but give it, give sure. them something, something meatier to, to, to look at there. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what's so incredible and like powerful that, that comes from Chinese medicine. I really think that the way that we are taught to not only understand our bodies from a Chinese medical perspective. So you know, including this concept of us being beings that channeled qi, life force energy, through um, an energetic system that everybody has, um, you know, through understanding that that energetic system is actually what connects us to our outer world and to the nature around us. And so you start to learn about, you know, when you start to learn about what, how Chinese medicine sees and understands a human being and its relationship and its connections to the nature around us, including the other beings around us, you start to see this incredible picture of who you are in the context of the universe around you that you were never taught, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just, you don't really grow up understanding the world and the universe in that way. And I think that when you do, Um, it just instantly ports you out of this way of seeing yourself as someone deficient in collagen. I don't have enough collagen, I'm aging, Um, or deficient in um, having the right figure or deficient in, you know, you stop seeing yourself as someone deficient in something that you need an external consumer product to fix. Mm -hmm. And you start to recognize that you're, are more than what you've ever been taught that you are. And I think that that's really important for people, especially now 
to understand about themselves. And if that has to be through the doorway of, I'm going to teach you about beauty, but in the process, I'm also going to teach you about who you are from a Chinese medical perspective. I think that that can be um, soul soothing, you oh, know, because sure. right. Soul soothing and, um, and, and, and just something that needs to happen. Like we need, you know, to know thyself is an important um, path that we have to travel in, in life. If we want to get through life, um, you know, being able to experience harmony, being able to experience um, joy, it, it, we need to go through that path of knowing thyself. And I feel like Chinese medicine has a lot to offer in teaching you about yourself. And it, I feel like it, reminds you or at least teaches you that um you're something you are you know you as a human being myself any anyone as a human being is a pretty incredible um miracle you know and i think in times like this that we're in we have to connect to that and when disorder reaches the skin level, you know, it's not a small thing, you know, for something to reach all the way into um, affecting your skin, to me always is always something that was building for a long time. Um, and probably reaches into like emotional distress that has been baking for a long time. And um, these are the things that you, you're going to want to address. Otherwise, you know, the skin starts to speak loudly and then begins to scream at yeah. you at some point. And that's true, not just for skin disorders, as you know, it's true for any way that disorder manifests through a person's system. But when it comes to skin, it's particularly aggravating for people and scary because it feels out of your control and it's displaying in a, in a way for everyone to see. Yeah. So vulnerable. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really, um, it's really, uh, hard emotionally when people are dealing with chronic skin disorders, uh, chronic inflammatory skin disorders, especially when it's visible. So I'll talk, let's, let's imagine that I'm a patient and I have uh, something going on with my skin. Let's pretend I have acne and I come to see you and I'm like in pieces about it. And I'm so, it's just like affecting, I can't go on dates. I can't put on anything on my face. It hurts. I, I'm like, I'm really struggling. What, what is your intake? Like, what is the, the beginning of that relationship like for you? Um, first, I want to understand that I'm very technical at first, you know, at first I want to understand, um, what, how long this has been happening? How long have you been having acne? It does make a difference if it's something that um, started recently only and you've never had a history of it versus having a long on and off history with acne. And it runs the gamut, you know? So um, I would wanna understand the history of your acne. I would wanna understand um, the the characteristics of the pimples themselves because when we use the word acne um it actually means a lot of different things to different people so you want to start to understand or at least i want to start to understand what style of acne is happening here 
-hmm. And, um, you know, is it more like, does it, are there more whitehead type pimples or more just pustules that never come to whiteheads that can make a difference in how you diagnose and how you treat and what kind of herbs you choose. Um, so it's like really, I'm like really getting to know that the nature of that person's acne. And then after that, um, of course I, I, if, if it's a female person, um, then I want to understand their menstrual cycle and I want to know every, you know, every detail of it. How much do you bleed? What color is the blood? Um, if it's irregular, I want to see like the last six months of day one of your period. Um, I want to see a lot of detail with the menstrual cycle. Um, and then, you know, I want to know about the rest of your system. So digestion, I want to know how does it feel in your body after you eat food? Are you bloated? Usually, are you gassy all the time? Um, do you have a nice, healthy, satisfying bowel movement every day? Or if not, what's, what is happening or not happening? Um, so going through all of this detail, all the way down to, you know, understanding what the person's emotional state is like most of the time or it, it, lately. So all of these things are important. So the intake is quite long. Like when the first time I see someone for, um, in, in my practice, I call it the TCM dermatology consult. Um, it's a good hour. And then not only do I want to know all this information and I didn't even name all of it because that would just take a long time to go through every nugget. But um, that's like an example of some of the things that I need to know. And, um, but I also take pictures because that's so important in skin disorders to be able to visually diagnose through the skin. Cause the skin, you know how, when we learn to read the pulse and to read the tongue, well, when you treat skin mm -hmm. disorders, you get an extra layer of um, a diagnostic tool, which is the skin itself. So looking at, you know, how deep the, lesions are, whether it's a pimple or some other type of lesion, looking at its color presentation, you can get all this information by reading the skin. And so taking good pictures is really, really important to me for that because it really helps me see, um, like you can zoom in and see things that you can't with, your, with just your eyes sometimes, and that can be helpful. And then of course, the most important thing about taking pictures is, um, to see the progression and the change. It's, it's, it's impossible. So yeah. It's impossible to track changes without pictures. In my opinion, you just can't do it. So it's so important for, um, treating skin in my opinion, to, to track with pictures. I love that idea. And I think people who care for others in, in different ways with different techniques can figure out get creative and sort of figure out their version of taking pictures. I yeah. find that to be so important to figure out some sort of like linear way of measuring. Are we on track? Are things changing? How are they changing? Yeah, because a lot of times people will go, well, but first, let me say, by the way, I mean, where I learned about the importance of taking pictures is from my teacher. So um, I have a, a dermatology teacher that's very specifically trained in dermatology with him. And um, so you learn a lot of these things that are important 
from your teachers. So I learned mm -hmm. that. And, um, and yeah, it's important to be able to track because people will often say, you know what, nothing's changed. And then you look at the pictures from a month ago to now, and there's clear change. It might not be a hundred percent and it might not be, you know, what you expect by the end of the treatment, but when you can see, oh my gosh, your skin's so much less red. It's probably 60% less red. Um, the redness area is smaller. Um, or, you know, you, you see the pimples changing from like deep, large, and cystic to smaller and more, um, more pustular. That's a positive change when you're treating acne is for it to go from deep cystic and long standing, where just, you know, you've got pimple that's been there for two weeks to, um, oh, they're actually coming to whiteheads and moving out of my skin. That's a really good change. I love that. So, okay. So you, you get the, you do the, your full hour consult. People are like, why is she talking to so much? When is she going to put something on my face? Uh, what do you do when people kind of want to like, uh, zoom through that and just like, Get to the treat. Well, that's a good question. Well, actually, um, the structure of my first treatment, which is why it takes so long, is because they spend the first part of it um, helping them understand the lay of the land. Because working with herbs can be so foreign to people. Some people have never experienced any kind of Chinese medicine. So for me, it's really important that they that we have a conversation about what to expect. And um, so before I even get to the intake, I'm letting them know, look, this treatment means you're drinking disgusting tasting herbs twice a day, like about half a cup full twice a day. And um, here are some strategies on how to get through that if it's difficult for you, because it is not easy, but it's doable. And um, you know, it's important for them to understand the time frame and, and the lack of um, certainty about that time frame. It's, you know, there's all these things that I really feel like when someone chooses to use Chinese medicine or skin treatment, they need to understand what to expect very, very clearly because it's not a linear line from, you know, where they are to perfection. It's just not like that. It's going to go up. There's going to be ups and downs. And um, I like to have a conversation about that so that they understand what to expect. I don't think anyone who wants to feel successful in using Chinese medicine for resolving skin disorders should be um, you know, hyper-focused on speed because they're just gonna feel disappointed. This isn't a speed game. This is a healing game. This is where we get under the hood of your skin and try to correct all the things that are out of order and that takes time. And you are super upfront with that, with your patient. Yeah, unless, I mean, there's exceptions to everything, but like usually people are coming to me because they've had a long history of acne or um, they've struggled to resolve it on their own or struggled to resolve it using Western medicine. Um, but most of the time I'm working with people that require like, much deeper internal change. So um, by treatment two, treatment three, I, if it's acne and rosacea, I am working on the face with um, acupuncture and um, other kinds of tools that I 
like to use to try to encourage the congestion out of the skin surface. And the other thing, what you mentioned is most of the, the most important part of the TCM treatment for skin, at least in my practice, is non is not doesn't involve acupuncture, doesn't involve treating the face itself, but it is strictly the herbal treatment. So it's really more of an herbal consult and an herbal process. However, for certain skin conditions like acne, I will get onto the face usually in treatment two. Okay. Um, so even in, in treatment two, there's not a ton of time for it unless we do um, a specific like facial work for the purpose of supporting the herbal um, treatment, if that makes sense. The herbal treatment's key and foundational. Like I don't expect acne to change without the herbs. Gua Sha is actually helpful for um, acne, in my opinion. You will see many books say not to do um, Gua Sha on acne. And, and for the most part, that's true because Gua Sha, when performed in a traditional way, like on our backs and our necks, and it's quite aggressive. That's just not something that you do on lesions like pimples. But there is a way to use a softer style of Gua Sha and um, coupled with heating, like heating up your tool, that is extremely helpful for um, helping congestion move out of the skin surface. Again, it's kind of a nuanced treatment that you don't, you should never do at home without guidance from an actual TCM practitioner. Um, and I think that's an important point. Um, and if you are a TCM practitioner, you should probably also train in how to do these things if you're not familiar with them. Because working with the skin is, there are some things you have to know if you wanna practice in a safe way that won't harm your patient's skin. Yeah, for sure. I, I would love for you to talk more about that, especially because you you brought up gua sha and I know that there's, that seems to be like a big hole in the, in the TCM education. They sort of like throw caps at us and are like, have at it, you can gua sha any part of the body. And I'm right. like, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> this seems wrong. And, um, I think you're doing a really beautiful job of filling that hole sort of publicly. Oh, thank you. You really are. Um, so yeah. Could you tell us more about, um, more of the, what not to do's, I guess. Sure. With Gua Sha. Well, yeah. I think that you're right. There is a, um, we don't, um, you know, learning. Well, I've heard this from people. I guess it depends on where you were schooled and at what point in time you were schooled, because I don't, if you're in school now, I mean, you know, the, the teachers and the education that I was exposed to um, 15 years ago is very different, mm -hmm. most likely. Um, but I have heard from a lot of practitioners that they didn't feel like their gua sha training was as strong as they had hoped mm -hmm. it could be. Um, and I think that's unfortunate because it's a really important tool, I think, in the Chinese medicine toolkit. And I would say that I would say, I would push back on a little bit that you didn't get the education because part of the education of Gua Sha starts in your theory classes. So when you learn TCM theory, that's the beginning of your Gua Sha education because Gua Sha, um, the reason why it works, um, the principles of it are TCM 
principles. You need to understand about chi. You need to understand that you're working with meridians. You need to understand about blood stasis, mm -hmm. you know, and the concept of invigorating blood, um, the concept of breaking blood stagnation. You have to understand all of that before you really get what you're doing when someone puts a gua sha tool in your hand and says, go, mm -hmm. right? So TCM foundation is a really important part of understanding gua sha. So you, we all got that. It's just more on a technical level. It may not have been emphasized in certain classes or in clinic, you know? So um, I think that right now we're in a weird place with gua sha as it meets the world. Mm -hmm outside of TCM practitioners, because um, this is a really um, powerful medical treatment. And I feel like that's getting lost as social media takes over gua sha, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. And as a practitioner, um, as you and I know, you know, we train in things that most influencers have no idea about, like what not to do. Yeah. So this is a long answer to finally get to what not to do. And this is an important part of our training. And, um, you know, gua sha should be, I, I wish that gua sha could be met in the world of social media, which is kind of like the dominant source of media that we all get with more attention to um, the fact that it's a serious medical treatment and that it's not to be taken lightly. Um, but this is, this is a modality that, um, one should not play with lightly without knowing what you're doing or being trained by someone who was trained in the foundations of not only gua sha, but the medicine system of gua sha. A lot of people don't seem to understand that. And so you see a lot of people who are totally untrained teaching about gua sha on social media. And I worry about that a lot, um, as well as people that are outside of the TCM profession, um, you know, putting themselves out there as experts of gua sha, which I think, I'm sorry, but it's just not possible to be an expert in gua sha unless you've gone through TCM training. Because like I said before, the foundation of TCM come first when you're learning any Chinese medicine modality. And if you don't have that foundation and that background, you are not an expert in gua sha. You can be a, a seasoned practitioner of gua sha, but you're not an expert in, in gua sha, which is a TCM. The people that are experts in gua sha are TCM practitioners who've been trained and licensed. So I, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. I, I you articulated that so beautifully <laughs> and I was just having a laugh thinking about uh last night I was picking up some stuff at CVS and they had you know like the, the jade rollers and the the pretty beautiful tools and stuff right at the on sale at the register and I was like they don't sell like <laughs> the, the ugly acupuncture tool or the ugly Chinese medicine tools like this at right. the pharmacy and you can't buy herbs just you know, three for $15 at the register at CVS like this, like, why are we doing this to gua sha? And yeah, you know, I think, well, I actually would love to hear why you think that is. I think that, um, 
I think that this is something that happened. Well, actually, before I get there, let me answer your first question. What not to do with guasha? Oh, yeah, we never got that. So, um, <laughs> so well, for, the first thing is to understand that guasha is a practice that is applied to um, real almost, um, and I'd say almost anywhere in the body, usually along muscles and around joints. So, um, you know, the most common area to practice gua sha is the back, the neck, but it can be practiced on, you know, other areas that have been injured um, or that have some kind of physiological problem where gua sha is appropriate. Um, so it can be practiced anywhere, but a lot of people today who are learning about this thing called gua sha for the first time are learning about it as a facial technique. Right, so right, they right. think that gua sha is a facial thing it's, mm -hmm. and it's not. Facial gua sha is, is, a, is a derivation or it's, it's just a, a part of a larger practice called gua sha and it happens to be much softer and gentler than what you practice on other parts of the body where your intention for anyone who's listening that's never come across the word gua sha and is like what the heck are you talking about gua sha is this medical technique where you use a essentially a gua sha tool which is any kind of smooth instrument mm -hmm. so really popular ones are porcelain soup spoons personally in my practice when i'm doing gua sha um, on areas other than the face I like to use a metal lid that's very similar to the lid of a mason jar. That's my favorite tool for um, gua sha uh, on the, applied to the body. So, um, so it's this technique that the goal of which is to help the body express sha, S-H-A, sha, which can be roughly translated as toxins or impurities um, or disease. So it's, you know, pulling out the stagnation that causes disorder and disease from the tissues. So I think of it as like a reset mm -hmm. to your circulation. Um, so that's what gua sha is. And then, so when you, what, what not to do with gua sha is of course, to do it on skin that is sunburned or skin that is open, whether it's open because of a rash or dermatitis or a cut or abrasion, you never do gua sha on that. You don't do gua sha on moles. Um, you put your finger over it if you're uh, working with gua sha. And, I, and unless it's on the face, then it's a little bit different. But um, you don't do gua sha on someone who's super deficient. You know, so that concept is a TCM concept, who's deficient. A lot of people think they're deficient these days, and I think they're actually more stagnated than deficient. Oh, um, hot take. Yeah. So, um, you know, people think, oh, I'm tired, so I must be deficient in energy, but you, you can be tired because your energy is stagnant. So, um, and I, and young people, that's way more the case. Um, so, so anyway, so you don't, but if someone's like really, like picture someone kidney deficient, they're cold all the time, they're tired and fatigued all the time, and they simply don't have enough energy to even get through the day, Guasa is probably not what you're going to go for, right? 
probably going to go for moxa in that case versus gua sha. So there are these conditions that you should not apply gua sha. You also need to be careful in people with migraine conditions, chronic migraine conditions that can be sensitive to the, the slightest um, change in tension or the slightest change in um, the, the state of the, of the tissue of the neck mm-hmm. and even the upper back. You just have to be careful with people that have chronic migraine issues. And um, this is so hopefully you can, people can get the picture like, oh, it's not just something that this isn't just like jade rolling, or this isn't just me applying a product to my skin. This, this stuff, you know, this is serious. No, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, um, and it's powerful. So anytime something is powerful and can create powerful, positive change, you do, you're usually things that you need to be careful with because um, because they're, they're, they're medical, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there should be some sort of, I think anyway, uh, a clear intent. What you're saying is, is so right that without a fundamental knowledge of some kind of framework or theory, it's impossible. And, to yeah. I mean, and there's sort of an exception I would say, which is, um, so if you're part of an Asian family, so, you know, I, my parents are immigrants, Mm-hmm. Um, we're Chinese by way of Taiwan. And in a lot of Asian cultures, gua sha is just part of the medicine that gets passed down by your mom. Usually, usually it's a mom and auntie or grandma. Um, I mean, uncles and dads know it too, but you, you know, many people experience it from their grandma or some woman in the family that, um, you know, is, 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 is the one to nurture you when you don't feel well. And, um, so gua sha and things like gua sha are just something that you learn as part of growing up in the Chinese culture. So you'll see, you know, Asian people just whipping out gua sha when, you know, their child isn't feeling well because they know what to do with it. But it's different when it comes into the Western world to people who've never even heard of it. Or there once was a day when I graduated, which was about 15 years ago, when people were horrified at what they saw happen to your skin when you get washa. I had patients who um, their partners, usually a husband or a boyfriend, would sort of be furious at me when they saw what happened because they didn't know what it was and they got protective. Yeah. Who did this to you? Right. So, um, it looks frightening to people that don't know what it is. And so, you know, we've come a long way with the awareness of gua sha in our culture, but when it reaches a culture, um, or, you know, a dominantly sort of, um, you know, American European or whatever culture that doesn't have that, in their traditional medicine, then um, that's when it's important to recommend to people that you have training and guidance when you're using a modality like this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe the the pendulum, at least with facial, I don't really see that many people doing um, ugly, quote unquote, gua sha, but I think with with the facial treatments, at home treatments, the pendulum has kind of swung in the opposite direction and everyone 
has given themselves the, the liberty to mostly like what treat their wrinkles wrinkles or like lift yeah 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 lift um you know uh, brighten the complexion smooth the complexion yeah and that's the other thing that I am trying to um help sort of insert into the conversation about gua sha which is that gua sha is not a cosmetic treatment by and large gua sha is a powerful medical treatment that has been proven to heal disease like hepatitis. So when you, and there's studies that show this. So when used for um, vertigo, um, cervical pain, cervical meaning neck, um, and things like hepatitis, it's been shown to um, create positive changes in those conditions. And so this is a healing modality that heals the body of its ailments first and foremost. Um, but what I'm seeing is that I wasn't expecting is that, you know, there's nothing that makes me happier than for people to invite and use Chinese medicine in their daily lives and find benefit or even experience it as a game and life changer. There, nothing makes me happier. What I didn't expect is that in this process of becoming popularized, that's so many um, people would hop on the bandwagon who aren't actually experts who actually know and understand Gua Sha. And, and most of the people on social media seem to be that. And I don't have a problem with that. It's not, I don't want to miss people to misunderstand that, you know, I love that people love Gua Sha and are talking about it, but it's one thing to talk about your experience of Gua Sha versus um, put yourself out there as an expert for people to follow. Um, that is a huge responsibility. And, you know, I think most TCM practitioners see it that way. That's why you don't see as many TCM practitioners out there hawking yeah. gua sha, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's a responsibility. And, um, you know, and plus TCM practitioners are busy treating patients. Right. So <laughs> not have all the time in the world, yeah, to be like posting um, content on social media, but this is an interesting thing that's happening with social media is that um, the dominant discourse seems, seems to belong to people who are outside of the profession. And I know that this is not only a potential issue in terms of Chinese medicine, and as in terms of popularizing the practices of Chinese medicine, because you've seen facial cupping is also um, popular and not well understood. Um, and, but just in the beauty world, this is true too, where you have like the chemists, um, the cosmetic chemists, you don't really hear from cosmetic chemists as much as you hear from influencers and the gap between the information that they carry is huge. And so that's an inherent problem of social media when you get your health and beauty information strictly from social media. Um, it's, I think it's important for people to realize that um, there are people that have greater levels of expertise who might be absent on social media, but who are actually important part of the conversation. And again, this is not to demonize influencers at all. I think influencers are really important because they're experts in reach and helping to reach a lot of people. But where we have to start 
really thinking is what we have to really start thinking about is the difference between having reach and, um, you know, assigning and crediting real experts with the information and knowledge base that they have to share and being an influencer. So it's almost like we have to team up with influencers um, to spread good, correct information about these practices. Um, but what tends to happen is that influencers put themselves out there as the experts. Mm-hmm. So I think it's confusing to the public. So anyway, that's sort of a um, soapbox that I've been on lately. Oh, honey, stay on <laughs> so, that soapbox. <laughs> otherwise, you get into also this issue of appropriation where the culture that it's now in, which you could kind of call it like this white wellness culture, begins to define what gua sha is. And we don't need that to happen. Gua sha has a definition. It comes from a culture. um, And not only that's crucially important to understanding the medicinal value of gua sha is to understand the culture that it comes from. Because as you know, the Chinese culture sees life in a different way. I mean, look, we use chopsticks to pick up our food, two sticks versus a, a spoon or a pronged fork, right? So it's important when we're learning Chinese medicine to understand this is a medicine that comes from a culture that views the world in a different way, not the wrong way. There's no right or wrong, but just different. And that difference can inform us today when we're dealing with difficulties in our body, when we're dealing with difficulties in our emotional life, this way of looking at the world that Chinese medicine gives us can help complete a picture that ultimately helps us move forward. When we can complete the picture with the information available from Chinese medicine, from Chinese culture, and that's the point. So when it get, gets ported over, something like gua sha gets ported over into you know, our sort of white wellness culture, and it starts to become um, misidentified as something like lymphatic drainage or a form of massage, you know, I think it's important to correct that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think there's um, just a really unfortunate overarching problem that of uh, appropriating a Chinese technique to sort of serve a unattainable standard of white beauty like to me that that just that's like all the alarms go off in my head I'm like oh wait a minute everyone drop the tools we have to talk about this so I'm wondering um how much of that dynamic sort of seeps into your practice you know it nothing breaks my heart more when when someone comes to me with some sort of foible or ailment that they're really upset about and from a sort of neutral perspective I'm like but you don't have to look prettier you you are fine that that wrinkle is not a big deal or you don't have to lose that weight like why are you right I want to support you but like I don't think much needs to be done in the way that you think you're no that's a really good point and it reminds me of people that have come to me that haven't even reached the age of 30 and um I'll ask what is you know what is your goal like what really brings you here today and it's the signs of aging, which um, to me are non-existent, um, but they're hyper-focused on the fact that 
you know, some kind of line is starting to surface on their forehead. And I notice that a lot of their attention goes there. Yeah. And um, it's such a tragedy when people can't enjoy their beauty, especially in their youth, because 20 years later, they'll look at their pictures <laughs> and be like, I should have enjoyed that, yeah. you know? And um, I don't really think there's an age where you shouldn't enjoy your beauty. And that's definitely a cultural thing that it's not that that doesn't exist in the Chinese culture. It definitely does. But um, it's unfortunate, whatever the culture that that's experienced in, I think that, you know, our sort of white beauty culture um, has anxieties that are different than the anxieties of like, you know, the equivalent of that in Asia, like might be more anxiety about pigmentation mm-hmm. than wrinkles. But um, still, I agree with you that like, you know, I think that this is my hope and my desire as a Chinese medicine practitioner to help change the conversation about beauty by simply educating people about um, TCM and how it views who you are, which is to be mostly concerned with how strong is your chi? Do you have strong chi? right? Um, How good is your circulation? Do you circulate well? (laughs) You know, like, these are things that you can do something about and that serve you in ways beyond, you know, even just relieving your pain. Mm -hmm. When things are moving well in your body, when all of your physical material, your energetic aspects of yourself are moving well, then um, you experience your body closer to harmony. And that feels good, right? That's when you feel great, not even in your body. When you feel good, you don't really feel your body. You're just experiencing your life as pleasurable. And um, so that's, should be a goal of ours, you know, like not just, oh, I need more collagen. Yeah. You know? So I think that that's what I hope that you myself and all the TCM practitioners out there can really, um, you know, be out there loudly with this message. Yeah. Yeah. And beauty to me is kind of the the side effect of that, of reaching that place. Yeah. In a way, beauty is a side effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you could say that, um, you know, yeah, you could say beauty is a side effect. Beauty is, um, is an energetic quality more than it is a physical, um, more than it is identifying with a physical thing that's happening or not happening. You know, like I really think of beauty as much more of an energy, like an energetic, because when you think of someone who's like striking and like gorgeous, it's not that they have perfect skin really. And it's not that they have balanced features or like an incredible jawline even though your eye might identify that, what you're really experiencing in, in my belief is their energy quality. Mm-hmm. They're striking, they're magnetic, mm-hmm. right? Um, because even people who don't have like, you know, on paper, the sort of on paper American white good looks um, can be alluring. And in some ways, I think that people who don't have like conventional standards of beauty who don't fit the conventional standard of beauty are often more alluring if they have that energetic quality Mm -hmm. 
So I think that people miss that, miss that in um, thinking about what beauty is for them. I feel like a lot of people think it's the absence of wrinkles or it's the absence of puffiness or it's the absence of sagging, but it's really the presence of something, you know, it's the presence of, um, you know, healthy chi like flowing through the body that just comes out through a person's, you can see it in their spirit, right? And Mm -hmm. in Chinese medicine, we evaluate someone's spirit because we see it coming through their eyes and we see it coming through their skin in a bright quality. And so that is resourced by something deeper, you know, and um, it's, it comes from taking good care of yourself and giving your body what it needs to um, function on a day-to-day basis. Um, And as well as feeding your emotional and spiritual self, you know, those all need feeding. So um, I think that that's really an important part of an important part of the conversation and beauty that isn't happening. Yeah. Not even a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to change that. We're changing it right here. And actually what you're describing is I think a perfect segue into talking about your soft powers, because I think beauty is one of the best soft powers and Mm -hmm. that energetic quality that is very palpable, but hard to define and has basically no linear definition to me is what characterizes someone's bedside manner. I think you could sort Mm -hmm. of switch those words. Someone's, someone's bedside manner is like the most beautiful part of the treatment to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. Maybe not to somebody else, but this is my podcast. So (laughs) it's my rules. Um, So I would love to know what are your, your three soft pounds? Well, you know, it's funny thinking about this. It's one of those questions that I feel like the best answer would come from those that know me probably. Mm -hmm. Um, But in trying to evaluate what that is, for myself, um, I think the first thing I would say is um, is a quality that I've developed because of my job of being a, a healer, a, a practitioner, and that is um, having developed and continuing to practice um, the art of listening. I feel like having a skill set for listening is a very necessary and powerful soft power. Um, it's, it's an impactful thing and in, that um, is really, of course, important in a client or a patient and practitioner relationship um, is to be able to listen without your own agenda. And what I mean by that is Of course, you might say when you're in space with your patient that your agenda is to get them better. But actually you have, in my experience, you can't even really have that agenda. (laughs) You know, I, I don't know if that sounds weird, but of course my job is to help you get better. But when I'm listening to you, I can't have any agenda because what's powerful is in Part of the healing is in my patient being able to experience being heard on a level that um, they don't usually experience in their life because most people aren't practiced in 
the skill set of listening. And that's why we experience our world the way that we do these days with so much argumentation, arguments and conflict and, you know, Democrats versus Republicans and, you know, all of this conflict. I think a lot of that is because there's no um, skill set for listening in the culture. And so when you're in the healing space, I think that that's a really important aspect of a person's treatment. And it is actually a facilitator of their healing because being heard, the experience of being heard is so powerful that it, you can almost feel an alignment starting to happen. Some kind of energetic alignment starting to happen. You can feel it. It's palpable in the space of the room. And um, so I would say that, yeah, it's the, it, having a skill set for, for listening, but true listening, not just um, hearing someone, but listening. Yeah, I love that. Uh, well, first of all, I'm just thinking about what you said about how, how we listen to each other. It's like we're listening with our eyes. We're just scrolling and reading, but we're not actually mm-hmm. listening with our ears and our whole body. And, and what you're describing with a, with a patient is one-on-one. It's like, yes, having, having a goal that they get better, but the agenda sort of reveals itself the more you listen. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's real. I mean, so much of the information that you need to gather is, um, you know, trying to get some kind of view into this person's life, how they feel through their life, what trying to get a feel and a sense of what's led them to um, coming into your treatment space, right? What's led them to that. And um, of course, without getting too attached to that either, that's, that can also be a tricky thing, especially when you're a new practitioner. But, um, but when you can really apply that neutral art of, of truly listening, um, I think that it's, it's actually, it's not only healing for your patient, but I think that it's a, a thing that affects you too, when you're the, when you're choosing to be listening in that way, um, that it, it supports your own energetic system too, when you can do it neutrally without judgment, without, um, again, having your own agenda, just, it's a, it's something that needs to be experienced. It's powerful when you feel heard by someone in that way, they don't have an agenda. You know, even when you're talking to like a friend, maybe you're like complaining about something that happened to you. Um, one of the things that so feels so supportive is for your friend to agree with you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but that's having an agenda yeah. of agreeing and supporting you. And that's not necessarily a healing way of listening it's supportive. Yeah. And it demonstrates, you know, some kind of loyalty, which is important in a relationship, but the, the healing way of listening is something entirely different. Mm -hmm. And I try my best to apply that way of listening, not only in when I'm at work, but, um, with everybody in my life. And I think that that's, um, a powerful thing and, and has a positive benefit for, you know, all my relationships. I think so too. It's very meditative, I think, listening in that way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What about your second self power? 
Oh yes. Um, well, I think that um, I think that it all kind of flows from there. I think that um, you know, in talking about not having an agenda, I think is um, maybe my second one is second soft power is, and I I see this more taking place having conversations with people about their politics because obviously right now everyone's talking about politics. You know, you're seeing a lot of judgment happening. And um, I'm really trying to apply this idea of um, being empty of my agenda when I have conversations. It's not that I'm always this way, but I try to have a space, especially when I have a personal um, difference in perception, or you could call it disagreement. Um, when there's the presence of a disagreement, I like to also hold a space for um, just really understanding what somebody else's belief system is without me bringing in my belief system or my agenda. I just feel like we've lost the ability to have conversation, especially when it comes to the um, news of the day. I, I would love to be able to have conversation with people that you disagree with and have that remain a conversation versus a fight or an argument. I mean, I, I say a lot to people that if I wasn't a practitioner right now, and if I was a journalist or if I worked in that space, I would be the one going to speak to people from all parts of the political spectrum, whether I disagree with them or whether I agree with them or not, and just have a conversation and mm. just to prove that that's possible and that, um, you know, to bring back that level of respect for other people, even if they disagree with you. So to me, I guess I would call that, you know, trying to have hold a space um, for being empty of my agenda when I'm, um, you know, being in conversation or just being in connection with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think to me, that's, so obviously an asset in practice when you're dealing with like an enemy such as acne or rosacea or eczema to go in with that mindset I would imagine totally changes the course of treatment and the approach versus making that the enemy and fighting it the whole time mm -hmm. I think what you're doing is really cultivating a space for the like the the argument with the body to just sort of be cast aside for for a moment yeah, I feel like when you empty yourself of an agenda or empty yourself of need, attaching yourself to a certain belief system, you can see other possibilities and other possibilities do present themselves. So, you know, like the possibility that you might see your skin as actually just doing its job mm -hmm. when it's inflamed because something else isn't doing its job internally. So your skin's taking on the overload. And so rather than it beating on your joints, you know, which is a much more difficult thing to treat when chronic inflammation reaches deep into the joints. At the skin, it's still at the surface, you know, and so there you, you have to be able to, um, in order to, in order to integrate or process that possibility that your skin is actually 
you know, it's saving your life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, you have to be able to, um, be empty of agenda. I have to be empty of the need for your skin to look perfect. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I need to support whatever your body needs and to try to help you, um, discover what it's missing and what it's not getting, but it's actually needing. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, sometimes when you just let go of any preconceived notions, preconceived belief systems, um, that you can see better. Yeah. Other possibilities present themselves. Yeah. And then I think that mirrors what a patient can do for themselves as well, that maybe they don't need to be, uh, demonizing or weaponizing their pathologies. Right. Yeah. They, maybe they can see this as, I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Rumi is, um, the wound is the place where the light enters. So, you know, I feel like that's, um, what, what, when someone sees that in their situation, that's when, you know, they're going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's such a good point. Yeah. What about your third one? The third one maybe is, um, something that I've learned to do in my lifetime is to, um, you know, learn the art of being your own, this sounds so cliche, but it's actually hard to do, but is to learn how to be like, you know, that friend that you have, that's always so supportive, sees the light in everything you do, even if you're down on yourself. Yep. Her name is Andrea Bessel. Shout out. Okay. <laughs> Andrea is to learn how to be that for myself, mm-hmm. you know, and to insist on doing that for myself, especially when I'm feeling the highest peak levels of stress, um, when I'm feeling my jaw clench more than ever, is to slow down and and just go and coach myself in a way that um, I make it easier on myself. You know, like, you know what? You don't need to do all those things today. Mm-hmm. What's, there's no, you know, in helping myself realize that I don't need to put quite that much pressure on myself or, because I have that built in. I'm definitely a perfectionist um, or like a recovering perfectionist um, and super like driven towards a result. And I think that sometimes that holds me back in life because um, I get just too stressed out. And um, I think learning to be that person for yourself that Andrea Bethel is to you is, um, is now something I would consider a soft power because it is, it does take you out of this place or it takes me out of this place where I begin to spiral down otherwise into, um, you know, a negative place where I don't do myself or anyone else any good by, by being in that space. So I think that just being willing to be, um, to have that space for myself is, has become a soft power. And it's something that I wasn't very good at, of course, 20 years ago, became a little bit better at it year by year. And now is much more of a default, um, is a, is a default practice or a default habit. And that's when it really feels like it's become a soft power is when I find myself instantly going into that mode 
of like, you know what, Let, how can we make it easy on you, Andra? What can we do to make it easy on you? And we do that. Yeah. It, we don't have a whole discussion about it. It's not up for debate. It just is. Yeah. We, we know that's the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. It really so, does feel powerful, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. And it um, really demonstrates how for any person, the power is within them to change their reality. And so much of what we stress about sometimes, it just takes this little mind shift that opens up your um, viewfinder a little bit mm-hmm. where you, you experience suddenly the reality of that something impending doom is, no, is not there from a little shift in deciding to go easy on yourself. And what's the kind, what's the kinder way out of this? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that that's, uh, been, that's definitely become a soft power. And I appreciate that you've forced me to think about this because it makes that all the more resonant for me, you know, to even, I mean, this is why I ask it. I think it's just, we forget because they're sort of invisible powers. They're not something you can put on a resume, right? but they do make all the difference. And I, I, I really appreciate your last one because I've come very slowly up over the mountain, sort of realizing that for myself, especially having spent so much time alone in quarantine. And now I feel like more so than ever, I have a very good understanding of how to take care of myself and how to treat myself gently. And I had a thought of somewhere like really in the middle of, of, of lockdown where I, I, I realized like, okay, maybe that impending doom is there, you know, that you were speaking about, maybe it is there but maybe I am the one who best knows how I will deal with that. And like sort of off offloading that responsibility to someone else. I don't even want to do that because they're not going to do as good of a job as I will. So I might as well just handle it myself, like handle myself, myself. And that was such an aha moment for me. I like that because, you know, and maybe we could even talk about a fourth soft power that you're talking about. And that I also recognize is in, um, the willingness to take personal accountability for yourself is definitely a soft power. And it's not something everyone has. And it's, I would say it's rather unique to come across people these days who have that. The Katona studio is full of people like this. That's why I love Katona. It's almost, almost to the like too much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but um, I think that that's definitely a soft power because there's so much power in, you know, the ability to take personal responsibility and the, and the way that the world, whether it's people or nature, um, meets you when you're someone that can take personal responsibility, um, is just another level, you know, it's just, I think that it just another level of personal success, whatever that means for you is available when you're willing to do that. Mm. I am feeling so powerful right now. (laughs) (laughs) Softly powerful. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh, this was so lovely. It's time, it's time to put you to bed, as we say in the Bedside Manor universe. But um, before we let you go, I love to hear what's on your nightstand. Well, um, no book is actually on my nightstand, to be honest with you. A candle's on my nightstand. That's okay. But in answering the question, I really thought about what I would love to put 
um, on everyone's nightstand right now, and that has been on my nightstand in the past, is um, a book called Healing Trauma by Peter Levine. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. And I just think that right now, Healing Trauma is an easy to read book. It's actually thin and easy to get through and such a great overview um, that really helps you understand the impact of having unresolved trauma living in your body. And this book really demonstrates how I would say most of us have unresolved trauma that still lives in our body. And this is, he goes through, you know, how we can resolve that and, um, and how it's so ingrained, it's so massive in our culture. I mean, we essentially are a culture of unresolved trauma and um, in many, many ways. And um, that's why I think we experience what we're seeing now today in our politics and the division, you know, is, um, is, a, is a manifestation of unresolved trauma. And so in, in segueing from our conversation about personal responsibility, this is such a wonderful book to help you self-reflect on where you oneself might be still carrying unresolved trauma, how you might be able to heal on that so that um, you, know, you can be more harmonious to yourself and therefore the others around you. And it really helps you. So one of the things I really got from this book as, a, as it was so helpful as a practitioner is that so much of the stuff that you see that you easily judge, like if you see someone being like a, is it okay to swear? Oh, absolutely, please. <laughs> Do you see people being like assholes uh-huh. um, in life? And you know, and this is a common occurrence in the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your first instinct is to be like, what an asshole, right? Yeah. And after this book, you just realize, whoa, like when you see that type of flavor of energy that people are putting out there, that's unresolved trauma. Yep. (laughs) And so it really helps. I think it's a really helpful book if you're trying to develop a compassion practice too, because um, when you can see that so much quote unquote bad behavior is actually just unresolved trauma, it just takes the edge off of, you know, um, when you look out into the world, if you, if you feel edgy about it, it sort of takes the edge off. I love, I think we could all take the edge off <laughs> about <Yeah>. now, <laughs> December, 2020, the edge yes. needs to be taken off. Such an important book for the times. Yeah. That's right. a beautiful recommendation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. It was such a pleasure. Okay, cutie, I'm going to let you go. This was kind of a long episode, but it was a pleasure from start to finish. And I'm so glad you came. The one thing I want to mention about Sandra, other than the fact that she's a genius and an angel and I'm obsessed, is that she has a a monthly series on her Instagram live uh, where she, they're called gua sha meditations. And basically what happens is you watch Sandra gua sha herself, which is an ASMR experience unlike anything else. But instead of doing a tutorial about like, here's how to do your wrinkles, she helps you change the conversation about supporting your skin and working with your skin and caring for your skin while you 
do your gua sha along with her. So it is so incredibly soothing and warm and just delightful. So I encourage you to follow her on Instagram so that you know when the next one is coming. Her most recent one was yesterday, so it'll be a month before the next one, but you, you got to get hop on that. And she has other great videos and stuff that she's always posting, uh, throughout the month. So do that. Um, I'll see you in two weeks for the next show. If you feel moved and inclined, if you loved this episode, please share it ideally with someone who you find beautiful. So we just keep passing that beauty baton along the line. Um, and of course, if you want to leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts, I will not stand in your way. So that's the show. As always, let me know if you need anything. Love you. Bye.